Over the last several weeks, I've been writing on the subject of atonement and its history within the church. I particularly focused on what has become the more dominant view in Protestant West called penal substitution. This view understands the meaning of the cross in a way in which, quote, divine forgiveness must satisfy divine justice. That is, that God is not willing or able to simply forgive sin without first requiring a satisfaction for it. It states that God gave himself in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, to suffer the death, punishment, and curse due to fallen humanity as the penalty for our sin. End of quote. What is being communicated in this view is that God is unable to simply forgive sin. Instead, he requires a sacrificial victim to suffer punishment for sin on our behalf. Therefore, God released his wrath upon Jesus, which now enables him to forgive. This view understands God's relationship to sinners fundamentally different depending on which side of the cross you're on. Prior to the cross, God was unwilling or unable to forgive sin. Whereas after Jesus suffered punishment and death, he is now willing and able to forgive. My focus will be to compare the penal understanding of atonement with the way the New Testament writers, and particularly Jesus, described the nature of God before his death on the cross. I must now lay all my cards on the table. I believe Jesus alone is perfect theology. My conviction is that Jesus is the only lens through which we can look at Scripture and define God. With that said, did the life and ministry of Jesus on earth revealed in Scripture bear the image and fruit of the God in the view mentioned above? Was Jesus, who offered healing and forgiveness to all, simply false advertisement for his Father, who was actually incapable of forgiveness? Or is it possible that the mission of Jesus was not about diverting God's anger, but rather leading sheep who had gone astray out of darkness into marvelous light? The New Testament writers confirm over and over again that Jesus is the final authority on what God has to say. Hebrews 1, 1-3 says, Long ago, at many times and many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Colossians 2, 8-9 says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Colossians 1, 15-19 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. 
1 John 5, 20 says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. 1 John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. John 12, 44-45, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in Him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees Him who sent me. John 14, 9 says, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Just days before his crucifixion, after the Passover meal with his disciples, Jesus prays, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all who you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, and having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. John 17, 1-4 Jesus says the Father gave him authority to give eternal life, which Jesus defines as knowing the Father. In doing so, Jesus says he accomplished the work that the Father has given him. This work in which he finished prior to the cross was to reveal his Father. The glory that you have given me I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. John 17, 22 and 23. Jesus is speaking in past tense of the glory which was given to him by the Father that he has given to us for the purpose of fellowship with God, so that the world may know that the Father sent the Son and that he loved the world with the same love he loves the Son. So Jesus says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does that the Son does likewise. John 5:19. Jesus is not operating out of his own motives or his own character separated from the Father. He only does that which he sees the Father doing. At this point, there should be some questions forming. Remember, which side of the cross did the life and ministry of Jesus take place in? Does the life and ministry of Jesus reveal a God who is angry and full of wrath, incapable of offering forgiveness to his enemies until punishment is dealt out and his justice is satisfied? Do we see Jesus withholding forgiveness of sin and healing from those around him until after his resurrection? The answer is no. Jesus offered forgiveness of sin prior to his death before any blood was ever shed even asking the Father to forgive those who were nailing him to the cross. Jesus not only forgives sin prior to his death, he heals all who were oppressed by the devil. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Acts 10.38 Notice in this verse that God was active and present with Jesus doing good and healing all. The strongest argument for God's character and nature prior to the cross is given by Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus begins reinterpreting portions of the law and addressing their misconceptions about the Father. 
His sermon was to persuade listeners to begin to act as sons of the Father, image bearers who reflect His image into the earth. Jesus begins by announcing to the people, You are the salt and the light of the earth. Not will be, you are. He says, Let your light shine before all men so that your Father, not just His Father, will be glorified. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Matthew five thirty-eight and 39. Jesus is challenging their interpretation of the law of Moses. You heard it was said. I can only imagine the anger and response of the religious authorities when they heard his statement. Of course we heard it was said, by God himself on Mount Sinai, and you are going to stand here speaking to us as if you have authority to redefine not only the law of Moses, but the very character and nature of the God of our forefathers? Jesus continued to reveal God's heart within the law, which had been previously veiled. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Matthew 5.43-45 Jesus declares, in order to properly bear the image of God the Father, you must love your enemies and pray for them and turn aside from eye-for-an-eye justice in favor of forgiveness. The God understood within the penal model of atonement is incapable of forgiveness and therefore in need of an eye-for-an-eye to enable him to forgive, which I would argue is not by definition forgiveness at all. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Matthew 5.45 According to the law, God's reign and blessing are dependent upon the righteousness of the people, which can be found in Deuteronomy 28. But Jesus says he causes the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous, and the sun to rise on the evil and the good. In Luke, Jesus says, But love your enemies, and do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Luke six thirty-five through 37 Prior to the shedding of blood, prior to his death and resurrection, Jesus says that if we are to reflect God's nature as his sons in the earth, we must be full of mercy, like our Father in heaven who is merciful, even to the ungrateful and evil. The Father can relate to mankind mercifully because mercy is intrinsic to his nature. He therefore has no authority higher than himself, requiring that he displace his wrath before he can offer mercy. This is not a father who is holding back his wrath. Quite the opposite, his very nature is to bless even those who curse him. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Matthew seven eleven. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. The truth of who God is has taken upon human form. God removed all language barriers of interpretation. The reality embodied the truth, and the truth became reality in Jesus. So then, in Jesus, 
Do we see a God unwilling or unable to forgive until the demands of justice are met in his own suffering? Is the forgiveness that Jesus demonstrates and teaches on earth one that forgives the offender only after justice is satisfied? Are we to imitate the Father by adhering to what he says, but incapable of doing himself? Absolutely not. Jesus not only revealed the Father's disposition toward us, he demonstrated that disposition toward Jews and Gentiles, sinners and saints, those who loved him, as well as those who crucified him. The Father doesn't need an eye for an eye. He loves his enemies, and he rains blessing on the righteous and the unrighteous. His sun rises on the evil and the good. He does good to all, not expecting anything in return, since his kindness is even extended to the ungrateful and evil. This is the Father that Jesus reveals to us before Calvary. The cross didn't change God's mind about us. The cross changes our mind about God. It's the goodness of God that leads men to repentance, a transformation led by the Spirit to renew our minds to be conformed to the image of the Son. I'll end with a quote from Athanasius. Pay attention to the language he uses to describe the problem, the nature of God, and the solution. It was unworthy of the goodness of God that creatures made by him should be brought to nothing through the deceit wrought upon man by the devil. And it was supremely unfitting that the work of God in mankind should disappear, either through their own negligence or through the deceit of evil spirits. As then the creatures whom he had created reasonable, like the word, were in fact perishing, and such noble works were on the road to ruin. What then was God being good to do? Was he to let corruption and death have their way with them? In that case, what was the use of having made them in the beginning? Surely it would have been better never to have been created at all than having been created to be neglected and perish. And besides that, such indifference to the ruin of his own work before his very eyes would argue not goodness in God, but limitation, and that far more than if he had never created men at all. It was impossible, therefore, that God should leave man to be carried off by corruption because it would be unfitting and unworthy of himself.